Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember, subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Five for Breakfast. We're now in our 25th episode of 2023. But before we kick off, I'd like to thank Westco, the platinum sponsor of Five for Breakfast, and our gold sponsor, Graybar. You know, we're just days away from NTI's allocation of the $42.45 billion feed funding to each of the states and territories. You know, some of the states are going to be the first off the starting line as like Louisiana, Maine, Utah, and Ohio have already submitted their five-year plans. We're looking forward to seeing other states follow suit. We're anxious to see these states and territories announce the opening of their feed grant application windows. So really exciting times about to happen. Um, Also today, we're holding our fourth regional Fiber Connect workshop here in Lake Tahoe, California. You know, these regional fiber events have proven to have been wildly popular. And our next and final regional Fiber Connect workshop will be in Minneapolis, um, the beautiful warm city of Minneapolis in October 24th. So you're not going to want to miss that. Registration will be opening soon. But next up for us is Fiber Connect 23 in Orlando on August 20th to 23rd. 20th to 23rd. Um, This is going to be the biggest and best broadband event, fiber broadband event in the world this year with over 4,000 attendees and an amazing program. You know, the event sold out the past two years in, the, um, in a row, and I anticipate the same, especially when we look at our registration is outpacing any year in history. So uh, it's gonna be a great event. Uh, that brings us to today's Fire for Breakfast session with our good friend and strategic partner, Mike Render of RVA, who's gonna discuss understanding the future of FTTH forecast. Last week on Fire for Breakfast, we heard from Greg Williams of Prisbium on the trends in fiber cable, the top three trends in fiber optic cable. This was a great session as Greg outlined the strong demand growth for fiber optic cable and highlighted demand for bend insensitive fiber. He also educated us on the benefits of 200 micron fiber and how it's backward compatible with the 250 micron fiber in the field today. So Greg is just a wealth of knowledge and I always learn so much when I talk to him. Um, today on Fire for Breakfast, we have the pleasure of hearing from our great friend and strategic partner, Mike Render of RVA, to discuss understanding the future FTTH forecast. Uh, Mike is a CEO and principal analyst at RVA LLC, market research and consulting. He's generally known as the North America's premier market research expert in tracking fiber optic broadband deployment and consumer attitudes towards broadband. Mike's received numerous uh, industry awards for his work in this area, and he's been a strategic research party partner, uh, it's been a party and partner with FDA for the past two decades. Uh, well, welcome Mike, and for audience, please type in your questions as we go and work them into Q&A at the end. With that, let's get things rolling. Put it over to Mike. Great. Well, thank you, Gary, so much. Um, yeah, today we want to talk about the the forecast and for this coming year and the next five years, and really how all the diverse players, types of players we have, 
in uh, the home space are, are contributing to that forecast there. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the drivers, what the momentum has been, what the forecast is in general terms, and then the different players and how they fit in. And finally, a little bit about what their uh, these different large versus small players pitch as far as bead money coming up may be. So this slide, some of you have seen this before, but I want to touch on it briefly. You know, we do a survey every year. Uh, the Fiber Broadband Association has sponsored this since 2007. So one of the longest running general internet surveys out there. We ask people about all kinds of internet use and um, ask them about how it's impacted their lives and so forth. But one of the things we do uniquely is take a speed test and a latency test during the survey. So that makes it a random survey of what's really happening out there. You know, Okla speed test data is good and so forth, but it is somewhat biased in that people with better broadband tend to take um, surveys that the speed test more often and so forth. So this gives us a randomized basis. It's also very real world in that it uh, you know, does have the Wi-Fi, does have going out and coming back. So it's it's just an average real-world look at these different technologies. But what you can see here is in every single category, fiber to the home beats the other methods of delivery. Um, you know, whether it's upload speed, download speed, cost per megabits, excuse me, um, um, the reported uh, um, outages, the, the net promoter scores, latency, all these things are important. Fiber is number one in every case. Uh, cable is, I think, number two in every case with the second best method of delivery. And then it goes on down the chain to things like wireless and DSL. But clearly, uh, the reasons this is happening at the base is that fiber is just better. It's, it's proven to be better in, in every every way. Uh, and, and this is even with some constraints. We know that when we're doing speed tests, they are constrained by Wi-Fi devices and so forth. So the, the higher performing methods tend to be handicapped more than the lower performances. So on average, um, the speeds are, are higher, for example. Also keep in mind that this takes into account what people actually sign up for. Even when a gig is available, not everyone takes a gig. Uh, so that influences that. But in every case, it's, it's uh, better for fiber. Just wanted to talk a little bit about momentum. Here we can see the history of fiber deployment on an annualized basis. You know, when I started helping track this back in 2002, you know, we were adding like uh, 25,000 households a year. And now we're up to uh, 7.9 million in 2022. So um, just, just great progress. Some ups and downs for various reasons uh, we've talked about before. But um, we're, we're really going to focus on the the future forecast for the next five years and even decade. So here we'll talk a little bit about the forecast. And you know we do a forecast every year of fiber. We do this based on uh, looking at what people have have publicly announced versus what they want to do. We do surveys, we do some statistical analysis and different things to to, to try to get to a forecast. And here you can see the generalized, track of the forecast. Uh, these are basically five-year periods. You can see a little longer than five years, 8 million pre-2008, 11 million, 17 million, 32 million, 
the last five years. And now we're predicting 56 million. So huge impact, by far the biggest build coming up in the next five years. We've constrained this a little bit. You know, we're assuming, first of all, that some people um, can over project a little bit, over announce. You know, one thing that's interesting I've seen in, in my career is in the early days, it wasn't cool to say you were building fiber. You know, Verizon was out on a limb and they actually got hammered a bit on their stock because people thought, why are you spending all this money unnecessarily? Um, uh, you know, DSL's gonna be great for many years, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so it wasn't as easy to do that. Now it is possible, positive to say you're building fiber. So all these providers tend to say, yes, we're going to build such and such. Sometimes they have to back off that a little bit. So we had already calculated, you know, maybe 10 million in there that was over, uh, over said, especially this is hitting in 2023 somewhat. Um, but but going on out is in, in future years. We're also Assuming some constraints, probably in labor, um, uh, you know, the material constraints seem to be generally being taken care of. People are stepping to the plate, building many new plants, multiple plants for duct, for fiber cable, for fiber itself, for the enclosures, everything. So, you know, there could be a weak link somewhere, but uh, generally looks taken care of. Labor could be a constraint. So if you look at the, the raw numbers, what people said they would build, it's about 76 million. So we're being a little bit conservative from that. Now, we're assuming there's no catastrophes from the economy, no new world wars, no no depression, those kinds of things. But uh, and of course, there can be minor dips in, in, in things over the time. But we're very bullish on the next five years and even into the 10 years beyond the five years beyond that. You know, one thing that many people do is underestimate the amount of fiber out there because they might be projecting only one fiber, only in affluent areas, et cetera. And that's just not the case. Uh, fiber needs to go everywhere. People have seen the benefit of that in, in lower income areas and rural areas. And uh, we also are seeing that in more dense affluent areas, you're often seeing two fibers to the home, sometimes three, uh, and that really makes sense. So we're seeing, uh, projection on out for, for very strong growth for the next really 10 years at least. And then some other things will come into play that will probably extend that as well, but um, very bullish on this on this forecast. So I, here I wanted to talk a little bit about the different players involved. Um, you know, one thing some people miss, especially on the the equity side, they're, they're the people covering public companies, they just don't tend to believe that these smaller players have been involved or why would they get involved? Uh, you know, this takes money, you know, why, why is this? And what I wanna go through is why the, all these different players are important and what they're adding. Tier three, two, uh, tier two, and especially tier three telephone companies were really the first of the game. Um, uh, you know, there's 630 or so of them building right now, about over 8 million homes passed, very high take rates. Really, they pioneered overbuilding of fiber to the home. And you might say, why? Really, they had to. You know, it wasn't uh, to get a better internal rate of return or anything like that. It was really internal rate of survival. It, it you know, all of a sudden the game changed from giving just telephone over twisted pair copper to uh, triple play, the, the video and the internet. And 
their old triple, their old twisted pair, especially that was corroded and long distance, just wasn't going to do it anymore. And they quickly came to the conclusion that going to fiber was the best way to do that. So they really uh, started overbuilding, um, and uh, and they had to, and that that really helped this worldwide movement to fiber the home start. Municipalities got in fairly early too. Some of them, there's only about 90 involved. Uh, you know, there's some political opposition and so forth, and it's more difficult because they don't have as much experience in telecom. But they've been very uh, significant in starting to prove the scale back in 2002, 2003. Um, you know, their goals are to provide economic development and smart grid, but they were significant to the history and will be somewhat significant going forward. And, and some are just done tremendously well. You know, EPB, for example, is a fairly large municipal, which against two major incumbents has over a 70% uh, share. So uh, they've done extremely well in some cases. So the uh, second, the next one is alternative or competitive providers. Uh, um, they got involved fairly early. Also, um, just seeing an opportunity. They may have been a, a wireless provider who said, realized, you know, this isn't going to work for the long term. We need to start building fiber. They might be just someone coming in, seeing opportunity. Uh, the big one, of course, was Google in 2010, both coming in, trying to find a good way to invest money uh, in the space that they were somewhat involved in, but also helping improve internet overall by spurring other people to, to build, which, which they did. They helped spur uh, some of the incumbents to really get involved in a bigger way. Uh, and their take rate has been very good. About 6 million passed overall from that group. And then, of course, the large tier one telcos got involved. Verizon was first after the Fiber Broadband Association helped the FCC make some changes to policy. They they jumped in in a big way and really proved you know, uh, the, the, the idea of uh, large scale builds. And, of course, their driver was, you know, DSL was just proving to be insufficient by that time. And they were starting to bleed customers. Um, and really saw the writing on the wall that they need to do something different. And so, of course, that was a big move in the, the overall uh, drive to everyone get, starting to get fiber. And then, of course, the smaller cable companies started to get involved. At least the more quality ones saw that they really needed to, to do something different. Uh, they decided to bypass all the new versions of Doxus and just upgrade the plant. And they've been involved for some some time, over a million homes of these smaller mid-sized cable companies have played a role and then you've got rural telcos or i'm sorry rural electric co-ops you know these very rural entities uh started to see back in about 2013 that uh there, this was another opportunity for them to serve their customers um you know created a second product for them uh they also have the opportunity to smart grid Second product may be important in the future as they get more competition from rooftop solar and so forth, but they've done a great job in starting to fill in that very rural area. Only about a million homes passed so far, but a lot of those are still just starting to get into the game. And of course, we'll be looking to federal money to help in these very low density areas as well. And finally, the, the tier one MSOs have started to build. Um, you know, you've got about eight entities that are they're building somewhat. The, the top two are being pretty slow to the game, trying to rely on DOCSIS 4.0, but uh, coming up and, and thinking that will fill the game. So far in my experience, all of those 
promises of trying to beef up an older technology helps, but it doesn't solve the problem. And hopefully they won't be too late to the game. But um, they're starting to see competition in fiber areas. So some of these are starting to build. In fact, it looks like my first fiber provider in a, in a kind of an exurban area will be Cox, a, a cable company. So supposed to get service in about two months. So they're starting to get involved in a bigger way. And um, this, of course, will help bring competition to the market in fiber competition. You're going to see more and more places with, with two fibers to various places. So finally, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the pitch. You know, all this bead money going out there is going to be looked at uh, from the state entities and from consultants and so forth in terms of what who, who should we go with? You know, the larger providers, the tier one telcos, the MSOs, their pitch may be, you know, we've got proven ability to build a very large scale. We've got the staff for reporting requirements, the accountants and the lawyers. Uh, you know, th this gives you few ent fewer entities to deal with. We can build more in a larger area. On the other hand, the pitch of the smaller providers might be more expertise in rural areas, you know, whereas the tier ones have largely, with a few exceptions, ignored rural areas. Um, they have actually had experience in getting involved in building. Uh, they own right away in polls in many cases, especially things like the R RECs. Um, many have said they have workforce attraction advantages. You know, when when they put out their sign that they need workforce, they get workforce in because people see that as an opportunity for a quality place to work. And of course, there's some, uh, some could say incentive for ongoing OPEX excellence. You know, the people that are, that are, focused on rural areas tend to tend to look there first. For example, I'm on a rural electric co-op for my electricity. Some not far away are on uh, a, a tier one, you might say, electric company, public company. Obviously, the public company, if there's an ice storm or a tornado, are going to tend to, for right reasons, want to fix the uh, the urban setting first before they they get to the rural areas where, where that's not the case for, for smaller providers. So it, it, all in all, there's other reasons, but there's gonna be some different points that these different entities are gonna make. And you know, it's not for me to judge, but uh, obviously people that are making these decisions need to think carefully about the best choices for uh, building in their states. And of course it could be a mix of all these things, but um, all these players have been and will be very important to the the build, the the unprecedented build in the next five years and beyond. And that's that's my um, publication, my my presentation, Gary. So, let's Mike, go from there. Uh, always great stuff. Um, I got a bunch of questions here for you. Sure. Um, let's start with um, Trish. Go back to the um, earlier slide there with the forecast on it. Um, so we, what do we do about 7.1 more back? Go back one more. That one. Yeah, we did about what? 7.9 million homes passed last year. Right. Um, so first of all, explain the dip from the 7.2. That That's a COVID dip. COVID dip and also was just a, a uh, drop in AT&T who was very important at that time, especially that important because there weren't as many other large players building. So that came into play. The COVID situation came into play. Um, and then it just came right back with AT&T building again. They had finished a build in 2019 that the FCC had 
kind of help negotiate. You know, if they did the direct TV deal, they would also build fiber. Um, and so they finished it. Yeah, for the yeah. AT&T merger right. with TV. Right. But by that time, they'd fully realized the need to continue on. But I think they needed to step back and and uh, analyze what how they were going to go forward. So there was a dip there. And then a cool so, COVID as well. But we're, you're predicting, what, about 9 million for 2023? Yeah, I, I can't remember. I think it's more like 8.5. So it's not a huge gain, but it still is an, an uptick, right? Well, pretty significant. So help me explain what's going on with the market right now. Because I, you know, all our suppliers, so Fiber Broadband Association, half our members are ISPs, the other half are the supply side. And the supply right. side is, what is going on? Why all of a sudden we went from 52-week lead times to now um, the orders have stopped, the pause right. for a little bit. So, is the what what's going on there? Well, of course, one reason for the lead times going down is just more supply, of course, and that now they've been able to build up their supplies and and have a better uh, supply to meet demand. But the other thing that happened, and we've seen this various times in the market, is when people see there's a, there's a shortage which there were shortages last year and the year before of uh, duct and fiber and sometimes people had to cast their own enclosures out of concrete because they couldn't get them and things like that um they started building they started buying ahead basically and inventorying product and and you might say hoarding but you know it was a, a good business decision they didn't want to stop their build because they didn't have material so they started buying more than they needed well now as things have started to catch up they've realized hey maybe we don't need that quite as the next order is quite as quick as we did before and in talking to suppliers most of them understand that that is the case it's not the underlying build that's down yes some people have reduced their build a little bit in 2023 uh, AT&T's taking somewhat of a dip for a year but overall uh, everyone we've talked to on the Employment side, be it be it contractors, be it engineers, uh, says, you know, we're gonna, it's gonna be a good year. Not, it's not gonna be as much of a step up as we'll see in say 2024, but with with the B money coming on board and so forth, but still a very good year. Yeah, I mean, if we get to 8.5, I mean, if you look at the previous peak, 7.2 to 7.9. Um, right. So getting to, you know, that's just as big a gap going to 8.5 right. so it's it's 2023 looks to be a great year from a deployment perspective and then you're saying 2024 and beyond is just going to keep rocking right yeah and we may have some constraints you know no one really knows if we have you know the fiber broadband association doing a great job in trying to help and others are helping build the, the labor supply but can we get to 11 million 12 million per per year how far can we can we go and so there may be some cap kind of leveling off, not because of demand, but because of labor supply, possibly. All right. So you kind of outlined the different segments between the tier ones, the tier twos, the cable guys, the rural electric co-ops, municipalities, the overbuilders, and so forth. All right. With all this money coming out, who are going to be the winners? I mean, who who who's going to get the money? What's, what's well, that? that's kind of yeah, that's a good question, and that's kind of what I was pointing to in the last slide. Is is no one really knows? I don't know at this point. Uh, obviously, I've heard people say I'm going with 
you know, some people think people, more people will go with some of the larger providers because, you know, it's easier to deal with one provider, et cetera, the, some of the points I made. But others say, you know, I, I really want to make sure that people that really understand our state, our rural area are going to get the money. So I think it's going to be a good mix. I don't know exactly how that's going to come out. I, I, I unfortunately can't make a good forecast in that in that case. Well, it looks like, you know, with the state broadband grants, um, cable has done a fantastic job of winning those with fiber, right? I mean, like we've seen all the the smaller cable guys switch to fiber at home, and the big guys seem to be definitely putting fiber out, fiber the home for winning these state bids, these state grants. Um, and then it seems like you know we always they've always done fiber the home for new builds, Greenfield, but right. it seems like that they are being very aggressive. Even the biggest are being aggressive in. Um, anywhere there's competition, they need to put fiber at home. Is that what you're seeing? Like we already saw um, one of the ice or the cable companies announced their big 10G and the big fiber deployment um, was mm -hmm. announced the other day. Yeah, I think cable companies are seeing the opportunity, and and actually, this is just a theory, but you know they're they're proud of their high market share, um, which isn't quite as high as some people predict we're only looking at the public company numbers, but they're starting to see that dwindle a bit. So one way to help keep that short is to, to go beyond, not only try to keep your market share up by starting to do fiber and do other things to try to keep your share, but build a new areas to try to get new customers. So that's that's an opportunity. But people like Rural Electrics, you know, they're they're thinking about this in a big way because, you know, they see the need and the opportunity and have have polls and and uh, they'd like to get involved. Then of course, rural telcos who, you know, there's been a lot of them built, but there's still ones that have not, and and it's they're realizing it's time to get in, and they're edging out. They they built their town, for example, and now they see the opportunity to edge out into rural areas. So there are a lot of people with the opportunity to build, the motivation to build, the desire to build, and and. And so it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah, I was surprised, you know, so there's what, 900 rural electric co-ops out there. And my impression, there was 200 that were had broadband, you know, and they're getting there is about another 50. Yeah, providing. yeah 250. Our numbers are the same, but you said that you had like about 100 that were actually have broadband networks. So it's. Yeah, I, I think that was about the number that actually can report you know, numbers, but there's about 250 that have already announced they're in the process or starting to build. And in talking to some of them, that will grow beyond that, but it probably won't go to 900. There are some of them who just think, you know, I've been in the electric business for a hundred years and and that's what I want to stay at, you know. That's crazy. I can't imagine any scenario where a rural electric co-op wouldn't want to go ahead and just um, provide broadband to their community, unless for some reason they're served, which, you know, right. they're not using well, the communities. I happened to come across a pamphlet from 19, 1935 from the Rural Electric trying to sell customers, and it said, power and light for the future. Um, this is going to change the, the resident, and it showed a guy with labor-saving devices on the farm, and it's going to change the world. Well, that same message is true for fiber, power and the, the power of light for for fiber. So there are certainly people that get that out there, and they're they're seeing the opportunity. And, and well, they, you know, they I, do... I love 
I love going to lunch with the general manager of a rural electric co-op because you walk in and every single person in the restaurant has to make a comment to them. You know, so they've seen them at church or at the right. ball game or they, you know, so they know everybody. Right. And so um, you're, that's to me the definition of accountability when everybody knows who you are, where you live, right. and, and has an opinion about the service they're getting from you. So um, yeah, those exactly. guys um, definitely are very accountable to their community. Right. Uh, yeah, and same for small telcos as well. They they that's part of their message is they're they're local and you can get to the decision maker and when you call you're going to talk to somebody with a South Alabama accent or whatever and you know that that's that's part of their their value proposition you might say. That's right. You got to deliver exceptional service if you're going to be seeing everybody in church on Sunday. So that's right. That's right. All right, well, Mike, um, we uh, we always appreciate. Um, talking with you and you've, you've been a great strategic research partner for FBA for over two decades. So thank you for that. And we appreciate yeah, everything that you and RVA does for our industry. Um, so thanks everybody for getting together today and look forward to getting back together next Wednesday for Fiber Breakfast. We're gonna be talking to Seamus um, Dowell, the Associate Legislative Director for the Telecommunications and Technology of the National Associations of Counties, uh, NACO. So please join us next Wednesday and uh, we'll hear what NACO has to talk about broadband. All right, thanks everyone.